You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I'm super excited today uh, to be joined by Dr. Tim Porter O'Grady. He has been a nurse for 49 years. He is currently senior partner health systems for TPOG Associates, LLC, an international health consulting practice in Tucson, Arizona. Dr. Porter O'Grady is an advanced practice nurse board certified in geriatric and wound specialties and holds two earned doctorates, one in learning behavior and another in complex system leadership. He has been a clinical professor, leadership scholar at Ohio State University, College of Nursing and Professor and Innovation Scholar at Arizona State University College of Nursing and Health Innovation, and is currently a clinical professor at Emory University School of Nursing. He is nationally and internationally recognized as an expert futurist in clinical health systems, nursing leadership, nursing professional governance, and health system innovation. Dr. Porter O'Grady has consulted with over 300 clinical systems worldwide and has lectured at over 500 settings globally. He has authored and co-authored 26 books and over 225 journal publications and is a 10-time winner of the American Journal of Nursing Book of the Year Award. Dr. Porter O'Grady is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and is a clinical fellow in the American College of Clinical Wound Specialists. Dr. Porter O'Grady has received numerous awards, including the American Organization of Nurse Leaders Lifetime Achievement Award, American Nurses Association Luther Chrisman Health Leadership Award, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Healthcare Pioneer Award, the American Academy of Nursing Presidents Award, and is a 2020 inductee into the ANA Nursing Hall of Fame and a 2022 inductee into the Georgia Nurses Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show, Dr. Porter O'Grady. Glad to be here. I'm tired now just having you read all that, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I am I am amazed at the accomplishments. And this was your brief bio, by the way, which I still shortened. So I'm 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 incredibly honored to have you on the show. Uh, I am familiar with your work. And actually, I have to admit. Um, you have been on my list not a very long time for whatever reason. Uh, but one of my students in my doctoral uh, courses said, you know who would be great on the show? Uh, Dr. Porter O'Grady. And I said, oh, my God, I definitely need to have him on the show. So I appreciate the fact that you responded to my email. And well, thank you. her for me. I, will. I appreciate I that. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Uh, so we'll start. Uh, you have had an incredible uh, career so far and uh, more to come. So How did you get started in the world of nursing? Well, you know, I'd like to say that it was deeply embedded in my soul and I responded to a call from above. But to be truthful, I had no intention ever of being a nurse. (laughs) Um, Even though I was actually surrounded by nurses. My mother was a nurse. Um, My wife was a nurse. Um, uh, I had other nurses in my family, but... Um, I unfortunately made some poor decisions when I was much younger. I never finished high school and left before I graduated and uh, found myself limited in terms of the, of the uh, occupations that I could actually do. Um, and I was working at a, uh, a wood mill in Washington State. I'm Canadian and my wife and I at that time had moved down from Canada and we were in Washington State where her sister was. 
and I got a job at the windmill, and they paid really, really well. But they put me on um, what was called, uh, what, what happened was that they made uh, cabinets, and cabinet doors would come down the conveyor belt, and I would be at the Y of the conveyor belt, and it was my uh, role to look at the door, see if it was intact, see if it was good and all that, and send it down to be made into a cabinet, or if it wasn't, to send it down to the wood chipper. So I was on what was called the rejected door line. <laughs> so you can imagine after a few days on that, what became my mental model for my future. <laughs> I said, if I don't really don't do something about my future, I'm going to be on this line for the next 30 years. <laughs> and I'm going to be telling people I'm on the rejected door line. So I went to the local community college um, on the advice of a, of a friend of mine at work just to be, you know, tested out, went to the psychologist in the career center there and they did all the tests and they, they assured me that I was capable, um, that I could be competent, that I was capable at any rate. And, and so they started me on remedial work for my high school and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and uh, uh, while I was there, one of my colleagues who was an engineer at the uh, plant left his engineering role and went to the nursing school. Oh, wow. And um, you know, uh, his wife was a nurse and he decided that he wanted to do something very fulfilling and meaningful. And so we go out for dinner. My wife is a nurse, he's in nursing school, his wife's a nurse, and I'm sitting there, um, <laughs> unable to communicate or interact or have a decent conversation. And, um, and he, he, one day we were talking, he said, you know, you really should think about this. He said, you know, I know you really well, and I know there's a real good fit here between who you are as a person and what nursing might be. And I, you know, poo-pooed him and all that kind of stuff. And uh, talked to the counselor at the community college, and he said, you know, there is a real connection there because human service was one of your high, high mm -hmm. items. Uh, he said, why don't you just go by the nursing school and talk to the director and see what she has to say? And I just shrugged my soldiers, shoulders. But one day I was actually going past the nursing school and I thought, okay, I'll go in. So I go in and the secretary was there and the director was talking to the secretary. And I was gonna set up an appointment with her and she said, come on in. Wow. And so we sat down and had a conversation and she said, well, why don't you give it a try? She said, one thing I can promise you, if it isn't gonna work for you, you'll know pretty quickly. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. So I rearranged things and that kind of stuff and uh, went in and never left. Wow, that's amazing. Um, now I have to ask, uh, how many men were in your nursing class? Three. Three? Yep. Um, uh, two of us became really, really good friends in self-defense. <laughs> so um, uh, Steve and I were, at, there was another one who was the year ahead of us. So he was kind of in his own sphere and we didn't have much exposure to him, but we were kind of uh, bonded buddies as we went through uh, nursing school together. And so there was just really two of us in that particular class at that time. Wow, that's great. Um... Yeah, because just because <clears throat> I know I, I know people who have uh, um, I didn't get into nursing till um, but now it's been 14, 15 years now uh, that I've been in the profession. I have prior to that, I was in the in the Navy, uh, sort of a little bit similar story to yours. I was not a high achiever in high school. I just didn't. I barely I think they, they just gave me a diploma to say thanks for showing up sometimes yeah. type of a thing. Um, I wasn't allowed to graduate on stage. That's how uh, my GPA was. Uh, so, so they said, thanks for coming. Uh, but I ended up joining the Navy uh, and had a, had a short 10-year uh, span that I was in the military. Uh, but I appreciate the fact that I know some people that were in the, in the Navy who had been in the Navy for quite some time and they were nurses and they were like, one of you know like 50 or 60 students that were male so i always like to ask yeah well, well yeah. it looks like you made up for lost time as well I, I i did i did i kind of put myself on a little bit of a fast track when i left the navy and just went through my bachelor's master's phd and try to do do something else <laughs> yeah so amazing um 
Now, when you finished school, um, did you know what you were going to do or how did you, what was your first like new grad position and what was that experience for you? I, I was in an associate degree program and uh, fortunately for me, I had really, really good professors. And there was uh, one professor who uh, was, was really tremendous. And she would say to all of us in our, in our program, she says, you know, we're, you're in an associate degree program. So what we're doing is we're giving you an entry ticket. This is what this program does. It gives you an entry ticket, but don't ever think that you have what you need in order to be a good practitioner. Oh. You have the foundations upon which you can build. She would say that all. But my expectation is that you continue to build. And she says, and I will help you make that decision if you will continue on immediately after this. And so um, uh, my friend and I decided, well, we do that. And uh, got, we were among uh, what we in those days called the first R&B people, you know, that you could go and not have to repeat what you did to go into the baccalaureate program at, at Seattle University in Seattle. And, and we both uh, went there on a, on a, a scholarship, actually. And, you know, I never, I have to, I should probably whisper this, but I never, ever paid a dime for any of my nursing education. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> which was nice in those days, you know, they paid you to go to nursing school. Um, and so, uh, uh, we both graduated from the BSN program. And um, by that time I was in practice in neurology. Um, I had intended to go into psych, but they thought I meant brain. And so they put me in neurology <laughs> um, and I was a charge nurse. And then um, about the third, just close to about the fourth year, they made me a supervisor. And that's when I began to realize, you know, maybe leadership is the right fit for me so I did um, a master's in business and in nursing administration um, at that time. And that pretty much confirmed that that was the trajectory I was going to be on. And so um, um, after I left my uh, practice area, then I actually um, uh, got hired by uh, hospital affiliates, which became Hospital Corporation of America and worked for them for uh, five years in a variety of leadership roles. Oh, that's great. Um, now, uh, now I, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, you know, because you have multiple doctorate degree, doctorate degrees, and uh, you've done an incredible amount of uh, like research and publications. What made you move from, or or made you look at doctoral degrees and research and publication eventually, kind of. Uh, end you up where you are now, where you have your own LLC and do cons consultations? Well, uh, I think probably the best way to, to demonstrate the urge in that direction was, you know, I was a new nurse um, out in practice um, in orientation. And I had a really good uh, mentor preceptor. She was just really good, very very patient and very experienced and very gentle, that kind of thing. But there are just some things that I expected to see in the practice environment that just weren't there. You know, things that I, were, uh, I, I was told or thought was a part of the professional practice of nursing that when I got into the work environment, didn't appear to be quite as, as sold. Um, and we, several things were kind of evidentiary of that. We had, you know, we worked with neurosurgeons and, you know, neurosurgeons kind of live on the emotional edge. And so you got to <laughs> always be really uh, aware of that and that kind of thing. And, and this one would come up from surgery and of course race around the unit. Then you go from one patient and unwrap their heads and do all of this stuff and then run to another and all that kind of stuff. And I, I finally said to, to Sarah, I said, you know, Dr. So-and-so seems to be in a big rush and you know, he never washes his hands between patients. Oh, she said, yes, we know. We know you have to remind him to do that. And I said, well, do they not teach the sepsis in medical school? I mean, should I be aware of that? She says, now, you know, that's not true. But you know, he's a very busy man. Mm -hmm. And I said, Sarah, I'm a very busy man. 
I have eight patients today. <laughs> I'm very busy. You know, nobody's reminding me to do my work. Right. Nobody's reminding me about the principles of asepsis. I don't have an agent who's going to be supporting me in these kinds of reminders. Why am I his reminder? <laughs> and she says, you know, Tim, this experience would be a lot easier for you if you just kind of learn how things work. And I said, well, you know, I think that's probably good advice, Sarah. I probably need to learn a lot more about how these things work because right now I'm not very happy with the things that I see. Well, she says, you know, it'll take a little while for you to get experienced and then some of these things will come to you a little bit easier. And you know, they didn't. They didn't come to me any easier. I was, a, I was just as concerned after a year as I was after a month. And then more concerned after two years when I saw more things that didn't kind of fall into place that were supposed to be a part of really good practice and professional behavior and all that kind of stuff and partnership and the things that, that I would learn. And then I also began to realize as a man in the profession, how much inequity existed, not because we weren't uh, well prepared for our role, but a lot of it driven by gender-based issues. And I became aware of that and that concerned me. So that's when I really got interested in scholarship. Mm. I said, I really need to know more about what's happened here, how this occurs, what some of the issues are, and then ultimately, what are some of the resolutions to this that we need to be attending to that isn't on our table? And we, we confront this day after day after day after day. And that's the impetus for starting graduate school and for doctoral education. Because the more I learned, the more I realized, oh my God, there's more to this than I even thought. That's great. Um, and I, I, sometimes I, as you're talking, I, I feel like you're, uh, you're, you're, you're preaching to me because I feel one of the biggest, I think, hurdles that I've had, uh, and it may be because I, and I could never put my finger on it, whether it's because I had uh, experience in the military and then I came into the world of nursing or what that is, but I'm very much uh, focused on resolution of issues or mm -hmm. problems or uh, like to like tackle it on and kind of move forward from there. And I always find myself dissatisfied in my roles when I see things are not addressed and I don't have an avenue to address them within an organization. Or I see roadblocks within organizations that prevent progress uh, for things to, um, to move forward. And I appreciate you mentioning the professional practice because from going, being in both academia and having served on the service side, uh, I can see what the huge gaps are and where we do see what people practice and what people we do in academia is, I want to say, where there is this gap uh, in between. And, uh, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as, as we discuss more. Well, you know, that's a, I think that's a really important insight. Um, Here's a, here's a way that a colleague of mine shared it with me. We were talking about this very thing. And, you know, what we were talking about women's ways of doing and men's ways of doing and that kind of stuff. And, and, and we're really able to kind of sift through that and, um, and sort through it. And, and I said, well, you know, I think it really begins with education and learning. And she said, well, we'll stop for a moment. You realize that most of us in, in education are escapees. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we've escaped the practice environment that wasn't satisfying to us. And we came into education because we thought we would be able to change that. What we didn't know is that we brought it all with us <laughs> because we never dealt with it personally or professionally. And we're still not dealing with it here. We've just escaped it. So it's okay. not on our agenda. And I thought, well, that's an interesting insight. I'm going to have to spend some time with that one. Yeah, but it, it resonated a bit. Yeah, definitely. Because <clears throat> I see, I see some of the some of the same. Yeah, I mean, like I think in any any organization or institutions, you always have your barriers, and you have your leadership that are trying to address it as they see fit, 
Um, I'm struggling with some of that as we speak uh, with, you know, um, of how things should be or can be versus what uh, others in the organization think is doable. And you always run into what's best and what we can do. And I always like to shoot for what's best mm. um, um, and not settle, but, but, you know, I'm not always the, the, the person in charge. So I have to sometimes, you know, just, uh, just follow along and try to make change some other in some other, some other avenue. Um, now you've done a lot of work around uh, leadership and uh, uh, professional governance and things like that. Um, I want to pick your brain about a little bit of, you know, how you, other than how did that work evolve for you? Uh, and also talk about now that we're seeing a lot of things in the world of COVID and all the, a lot of issues that we've ran into uh, in the world of nursing. And, and if we can transition to that, that would be fantastic. Well, you know, when I was uh, kind of coming up uh, in my own learning in my uh, doctoral work, there was a guy um, who was a nurse, Luther Chrisman. He was quite famous at the time because uh, he was a very frank, very upfront. Uh, he was a, um, a psychiatric mental health nurse. Mm. Uh, and so he was able to, to say things um, in a way that would confront them, but without you know, hitting you over the head with a brick. And, um, and, and some of his original thinking was some of the kind of groundwork that I began to do in terms of, uh, of nursing as a profession. Because you know, we use that, that word, but I think we don't use it with meaning. We call ourselves a profession, but we don't answer the question, what is a profession? And how does a profession behave? And that kind of became the cornerstone of my uh, uh, foundational scholarship. And, and I began to say to ourselves, well, if we are a profession, and, and we say we are, at every level of definition or conversation, we say that we are, um, how does that get demonstrated? What are the demonstrations of that? And, uh, and as I began to drill down into that, I began to realize we are about as far away from the demonstrations of that as you could possibly get. <laughs> and it may be, you know, it may be due to a lot of things. But the thing I think it's mostly due to is that, that we have been employed and have been a part of the hospital woodwork for almost all of the lifespan of our profession, especially in this country. And that we started as indentured servants. And it was only in the 60s that that be landscape began to change as we moved into the academic environment. And, and I think we were so thrilled with moving out of the hospital environment into the academic environment that we thought that was it. That's what would change the whole landscape and we would somehow behave. But the foundational issues still weren't dealt with. We were still in a hierarchical organization, predominantly masculine model designed and driven, um, still in, as a cost base, we were still in the costs of the organization. So there was no value attached to us. Right. And, and that continued through the decades and the generations. And so most of my early writing was, was on professional governance um, as a way of how a profession lives, how a profession um, acts, how a profession behaves, and what a profession needs to be able to sustain that. And that became the predominance, if you will, of the, of the body of work that I associated myself with as I, as I moved on this trajectory and has been the foundation of both my learning and my subsequent work. So um, just to, uh, and, and I know you've done a lot of, like I said, you've done a lot of work around the professional governance. Um, what would be, I guess my question would be, uh, what would be the ideal display of uh, nursing in the professional role? Because you're right, because we do have, we're still from the hospital system, like pretty much in every system, we're seen as a cost 
uh, we're right. in the house rate under, you know, with everything else. Um, so how do you see us moving forward into that role? And how, what does nursing perhaps need to do different, differently now? Well, now, um, after the pandemic, there is virtually no arguable doubt that nurses have value. If there is any evidence of holding the system together, making it survive, and still having people live, come out of it, um, nursing is clearly central to that. And, and not only is it, is it cognitively recognized, it was verbally announced by almost every forum and framework within the healthcare delivery system or the social system. Right. And so there's no legitimacy now to saying that nursing doesn't have value. The issue now here is to be able to determine what that is in a way that uh, demonstrates that value, both in terms of a social impact and a financial impact. Both are necessary in order for this to unfold in a way that will that will transform our value in a meaningful way going forward. So there's essentially three things that, that will drive our agenda going forward, is that we have to have the come to Buddha conversation about our own self-image. You know, um, we have to ask ourselves, what role have we played in our own oppression? Because we played a role. And we need to give that a name and we need to understand what that part has been. Because, you know, we can't say because we weren't, uh, that we didn't have the education or equitable education. We are now the largest body of the best educated women in the world, nurses in this country. We have the largest number of educated women in the world in this profession. So clearly that isn't, the sole reason for driving change in our self-perception. That self-perception is somehow embedded in a different place. And we have to begin to really deal with that, honestly, frankly, as Brene Brown says, we have to deal with that with vulnerability and transparency. And, and we do, so that, that is critical work. The second thing is that we have to be separated from the furniture and the bed and the cost infrastructure of the hospital. We have to be separated from that right. so that that is not a way of looking at the role. That's not the lens through which you look at the role. And then the third thing is that we have to look at this huge metadata that we have because embedded in that metadata is the answer to our question about what that value is. And we've got, you know, we've got, a huge uh, a repository of that data that embeds that value, that uh, uh, developing algorithms out of that help us enumerate those values that, that, that rise to the top and ascend to distinction and then clarify all of the things that contribute to that. And that that isn't somebody else's work. That's our work. And the thing that comes out of that is that the organizations with which we're affiliated will begin to realize that they are paying a premium for not getting what we have to offer. And they keep paying that premium through the back door instead of through the front door. The example is they couldn't support nurses in a way that would sustain them on board. So nurses left in great numbers and they ended up paying them double what they had to pay them to keep them if they had just determined that they were valuable and to have treated and related to them as that value. But sans knowing what that is, they didn't. And so they left. And so they ended up paying through the, you know, through the roof for people that they might not otherwise have had to do that if they had determined the value and lived that value ahead of time. Right, that makes sense. Um, and, and you know, you're absolutely right because we had 
I know colleagues who left one organization, went to travel nursing, and went across town making three, four times what they were making. And, uh, and that organization they left ended up having to hire other nurses, travel nurses to bring them in. And as you mentioned, uh, pay quite the pretty penny on that. Um, and they didn't, get, they didn't get better nurses. No, no, no they, they didn't. Got the, no. They got the same nurses. They got the same nursing. They got the same right. people. They got the same expectations. They got the for, same behaviors. For, but they for paid, a high rate. Yeah, they paid two and three times yes, the price exactly. for it because they didn't do the work up front. Yeah. Now well, you mentioned fault is that? <laughs> exactly. Very, very true. Now, now you mentioned uh, organizations and how they value. Uh, and I know you've done some work, you've done quite a bit of work on this. Um, what are some of the things, like if let's say by chance, one of those hospital uh, leaders is listening to this podcast, what are some things that you have found in your experience are the things that keeps nurses on board? Because it's not always money. Uh, obviously money is, a, is one of those components uh, where we have to make sure that our nurses across the nation, not just in certain sectors, are getting paid a fair wage. Um, but what are the other things that are keeping nurses on board um, and keeping them within the organization? Well, um, uh, um, to your word, the hygienic factors uh, being in place, paid well, benefited well, right. you know, all, um, positioned well, a chance to grow and develop in those kinds of things that are the normative human expectations have to be the platform that we stand on. Um, and I say that because I'm not always sure that that platform is clear or is consistent right. or is present. But that being in place, the next thing that comes to mind is that, is, is, is that you're right. As professionals, we are a social good. We are, in fact, a social mandate. Professionals are uh, a, a requirement of society to do for society what it needs done that wouldn't be done if we weren't there. And so, and so our value is embedded in that investment. And therefore, we come here to make a difference, to have an impact, to change something, to in some way uh, do something in the lives of those we serve that demonstrates our value by changing, improving, helping accommodate, or make better. And that deeply embedded in the human spirit, but in the nurse's spirit, is the will and the desire to do that. Else you can't be sustained in the profession. If that isn't somewhere there, you'll leave for other reasons. But that is kind of the center of what brings us here. And so a part of what defines us is that we, we don't manage events. We manage the journey. See, the reason it's easy for a physician to find value is because a physician does something that is an immediate shift. There's an intervention. There's a thing I do. There's a... There's a uh, a mechanism that I'm associated with that uh, drives the change for which you are willing to pay. Well, guiding the journey through all of the stages of that change are the people who are at your side, making sure that, that all of those um, elements converge. So the value of nursing is in the convergence of the forces that result in impact such that without that convergence, that impact will not happen. We know, for example, that sustainable outcome is the convergence of all the forces that make up that sustainability. No one of those creates that outcome. And not all of them individually create that outcome. It is the convergence of all of them that the outcome is a demonstration of. And that is nursing. I often say to my colleagues in nursing, you know, there isn't any one thing for which we are particularly noted. There isn't one set of skills. You know, medication administration isn't ours. And so it doesn't need us to do it. 
But you know what healthcare needs from us? Because that's what we do, that's how it works, is that we make sure that everybody does what it is they need to do in order to make sure that something happens that has an impact or is sustainable. So that's why we're concerned about what the physician does, the respiratory therapist does, the occupational therapist, the pharmacist does, because our role is how it all comes together. Their role is to do that which is their part. And if it doesn't come together, who do you suppose they come to see? Who's the, who's, whose door do they knock on when something isn't coming together? And who among us is not aware that that's what we do? We make it happen. We make it work. We make it sustainable. And so now as we, as we look over the horizon and we look at the social determinants of health, that's another way of defining who we are. When the social determinants of health become the mandating drive for the future of healthcare, who do you suppose is gonna be at the center of that equation? Because that essentially defines our role as we begin to uh, deepen, again, using the data and understanding you know, the circumstances that create the life of the patient, the life of the person, who's going to be responsible for making sure that all of those forces work in concert in order to make sure that life is improved, health is improved, and we have positive outcomes. And a part of that will be our recognizing that that value is critical. I agree. Um, thank you for that. That, that was uh, very well spoken. Um, now, I'm, I'm, now, I know like part of the work that you're talking about is very much like hospital or clinic-based, but when you mentioned the social determinants of health, which really forces nursing to look outside the four walls that we tend to operate in. Um, from your perspective, uh, what does nursing have to do to get to that point? Because even from an undergraduate level, primarily I would say 95% of what we feed the students are uh, direct patient care at the bedside and the undergraduate level, so associate's degree programs, uh, bachelor's degree programs. Uh, and even when you go into nurse practitioner programs or master's programs, they're still talking about a lot of times in that one-on-one -on -one interaction with the patient. Now, social determinants of health is much wider and much bigger, and it, it's going to require engagement with a lot more in the world of, in the community, uh, in policy world and a lot of other components that we don't do a lot of, um, I guess, education on or preparation for nurses. Uh, where do you think we are and where do we need to go in order to prepare nursing for, to be <clears throat> a driving force for those, so, those uh, social determinants of health? Well, we're, we're about 10 months pregnant. <laughs> That's where we are. Um, the one thing that, again, uh, tying the pandemic to where we're going, another clear signpost in the pandemic is that our system doesn't work. It's not working. It's not getting any better in terms of how it works. It's not more effective. Um, let's just enumerate how we know that. Let me just take the latest piece of data. We now have the highest per capita of deaths from COVID of any country in the world, any country. And I just had a friend of mine say, you know, we've got the best healthcare system in the world. And I, I, immediately I said, how in the world can you possibly say that? What makes you think that that's true? So, so let's back off from that piece of data. Um, the World Health Organization every two years compares all of the healthcare arenas in every nation of the world with each other. And they compare them within their economic cohort. So we're compared with what are called the GATT nations, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade Nations, which are the largest economies of the world. There's 23 of them, the big money people. And we are up there with the, with the top nine, essentially. And so when we look at 
our comparison in terms of cost of healthcare, the price of healthcare, we are number one. We are the number one nation in terms of the price of healthcare. But out of the 23 GATT nations, when we are compared in terms of health outcomes or health impact, we are number 30 out of 23. So we're, we're now dealing with the number one drivers of the cost of that healthcare to obtain a number 30 rating for the impact of that healthcare. So it's costing us a number one dollar to get a number 30 outcome. And here's the third piece of data. Not only do we not get that outcome, our clinical outcomes and our health outcomes are now receding. This past, uh, uh, before the pandemic, we had already declined in terms of lifespan. And since the pandemic, we've now declined upwards of, of two to three more years from what we were able to achieve prior to the first decline that occurred in the two years before the pandemic. So there's another indicator. I mean, we could spend this whole hour just on the indicators of what's wrong, of what we know is wrong. And that if it doesn't change, then it doesn't matter. But now as, as the, you know, the CMS administrator and, and, and even um, um, uh, the uh, um, blocking names, that's the darkest room in my house is the name room. But uh, <laughs> a number of notable people that, that, that study this for a living or live it for a living clearly have enumerated that, that we can't continue on this trajectory. And the reason that we, we, we grab onto say the social determinants is because all that really means is all of the factors that influence what your health is or is not. And that you can't change your health trajectory if you're not dealing with the factors that are influencing that. And as a nurse or as a physician or as a nurse practitioner, it makes no difference. If you're not doing that, nothing's happening. So now we have, we have no rationale to support not doing that. So in the next five years, there are a, a couple of things that, that will happen is that a continual remixing of the payment scheme that we are on to increase value determinants and paying for value. So increasingly we'll be doing algorithms for making a difference and paying for that rather than simply for paying for cost-based activities, fee-for-service and that kind of right. thing. That is not the formula for the future, um, which means that we are now gonna be a part of the package that is created for that. And likely being true to who we are, we will be coordinating, integrating, and facilitating the vitality, veracity, and viability of that package over time. So no matter where you're planted as a nurse, you will be expected to have that insight. So all through the continuum of impact on nursing, from entree, education, learning, curriculum, competency determination, uh, the, the two-dimensional NCLEX exam will no longer be relevant. It's already not relevant. And so we'll be, doing, we'll be doing AI demonstrations of competence as a bridge between learning and practice along the learning trajectory so that it's not all of a sudden one point in time you take an exam and suddenly you are now it. <laughs> and then the bridge between learning and practice will now have to contain all of the elements of that transition and transformation into how do you now practice in a way that pulls the pieces together that creates the metrics for determining that you have done something that's valuable, socially valuable, and financially valued. And that we'll be at the center of that equation and have to be competent in doing it. Now, uh, I, appreciate, I, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, now, as you're, as you're talking about this, some light bulbs are going off for me. Uh, having been in the role of running a professional development and education department within the service side of the house and knowing how little 
uh, most organizations fund their education departments and how sparse they tend to have their education roles within an organization or service site. Uh, what would you, what is your uh, uh, input from that perspective? How much do you think organizations need to um, develop or invest in education departments to ensure those competencies are in place, make sure that continuing education is occurring and it's not this passive thing, which it is for a lot of organizations. Yeah, it's, uh, learning is increasingly uh, more intentional. And, and the model for learning, you know, most of our models of learning are what are called pedagogical models. Right. They're, they're, they're based on the teaching of children. And so in that model, learning is a series of its own events. And the truth is that when we pass the pedagogical stage, somewhere between 18 and 22, then we move into what's called the andragogical stage. And the whole mechanism of learning is not grounded in the pedagogical process. So, so there, are, there are four basic things that will have to fundamentally change as we shift to a more relevant model of learning. Number one is the conceptual foundation for learning as an adult is that learning is a part of your practice. Learning is a part of your lived experience. Learning doesn't occur in another place. Learning occurs in the place that you're planted. So that leads us to the second principle that, that all learning mechanisms will have to be grounded in the places where practice occurs and that practice and learning are a part of the same dynamic. And that leads to the third, which is the mechanisms, the tools, the, the format, the framework for learning is going to have to be able to reflect that. So the movement to, to uh, um, um, AI and, and all of the mechanisms that that implies is going to have to be embedded as a part of our practice, just as it's going to be a part of the mechanisms of practice. It will also be a part of the learning of that practice. And then the fourth piece of that is we've got to measure the value of that good. If we're going to learn something, then there's going to have to be something, there has to be a product to that learning that demonstrates it made a difference. Right. Because, you know, there's a lot of learning occurring in hospitals that, that is a complete and utter waste of time. Huge. And, <laughs> And not, on, not only hospitals, but let's, let's be irreverent and say in universities, let's be even more irreverent and say, it doesn't matter where you happen to be practicing, there is going to be a lot of irrelevant learning that you're going to be forced to take while you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I could really be doing something better right now. So that whole, that whole mechanism that is associated with that dynamic now will need to reflect the technology and characteristic of the age into which we're moving that says this is no longer a relevant way of living and learning and doing and being. And so that is the landscape of scholarship going forward. Here, here's a classic example of, of this is our DMPs. Our DMPs have so much to offer. Agree. But we, we've, we've, we've done it all, we've, we've done it wrong. You know, we have this, this, this 10 year future of nursing thing and said we needed to produce more DMPs. So we produce more DMPs, but there isn't any consistency in the curriculum that there isn't any depth of scholarship that's consistent in terms of their translation of theory into practice. There are some that I wouldn't even want to take a risk of doing that. And there isn't a clarity around what role they perform once they get out in the world. Now, my okay. understanding of the DMP was this was a scholar practitioner. This right. was a scholar practitioner. Their role wasn't to originate scholarship. That's the role of the PhD. And clearly it should be. But their role was to be able to understand that scholarship and to be able to translate it 
so that it became real in practice. Right. And somehow or other, that disappeared off the, off the landscape. And so we've got, we're producing all these DMPs who can come out and say they were doctors of nursing practice. But when I spend time with them and we have these 10% conversations that we should be having, I feel like I'm in the room alone. And I'm not even a DMP. Right. But a part of it is, is that inconsistency in terms of that, because that's the role that should be leading the discussion that you and I are having now. I agree. I agree. Uh, and and that, was, that's, that was one of my biggest uh, concerns with the DMP, because when, the, and I've had this discussion with some of my other guests, uh, and we have done a poor job as to defining their role and creating the roles that they should be in within organizations. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the biggest things. And I wish more organizations would also, especially not just organizations, but even universities would incorporate the DNP into their um, uh, into their model, where they are they are also um, contributing and working with PhDs hand in hand in creating some of the models that we need to have on in the real world, right? Yeah. Because um, from a, from a, again from a PhD perspective, yes, research is great, and you know we do research and we come up with results. <clears throat> but what does that look like afterwards? Right? right, we create the scholarship, but what happens to it afterwards? And I've been lucky enough to work with some, um, uh, you know, just my the way my work has generated. I, I work with more uh, uh, law schools than I do with any anything that's nursing related. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> which is which is a weird transition of, of, of my work, but, but that's perfectly fine because at the end of the day, they've led to policy changes and, and changes within, within the veteran community, which, I, which I'm grateful for. Uh, but I really uh, wanted to, um, uh, I really want to say it, it resonate with what you're saying because it, it makes sense. We've, we were producing them and you're absolutely right, but the consistency and the quality of the programs do vary. I know some really great ones, and I know some some that are just meeting the bare minimum of of their uh, um, accreditation. So, so yeah, no, there I'm, is a huge there's a huge inconsistency. Well, uh, and I resonate it, with that insight, especially the one that where you say there's got to be a a, a, a crosswalk yeah. between the PhD and the DMP. I mean. I think that the DMP and the PhD should be taking the conceptual courses together. Absolutely. So that the thinking foundation that they have is shared. Yep. And then, and then where the, where the, where the transition occurs is, is the, the, the research piece of scholarship and the translation piece of scholarship. And then at the end, come back together again and talk about the contributory uh, character of their roles to the advancement of the practice of nursing and impact on society. So, um, the, right, so they're not done in silos. And right now it feels yeah. very siloed from each other. <clears throat> and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, um, there's still a lot of discussion around this. And I, I hope we get, we get to a consensus soon yeah. um, as to, as to uh, how we can better integrate the PhD and the DNP and, and creating roles to make sure that we have that we have roles for all these DNPs, and it's not just a degree. So some nurse executive can be the, be a nurse executive, right. and that seems to be a model out there now. So, well, I do want to say as well, just so that the listener realizes that I have met exceptional DMPs. Yes, exceptional yes. DMPs that are making a significant difference in the world. So it's not. It's not that that isn't possible or isn't happening, but the consistency and the breadth of that is something that is a challenge yet and still concerning. Yes, I agree. But it's definitely a, a, a wealth of talent that we haven't really understood how to tap into yet. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I hope we get there soon as a, as a, as a profession. So thank you so much. Um, before I before we sign off, uh, I want to know just if you don't mind, just a couple of minutes of what is your uh, TPOG Associates LLC? What kind of work 
uh, are you uh, doing with that and, and how it's contributing? Um, our practice is, uh, uh, we, a lot of our practice has been a lot of the issues we've talked about today, for example, dealing with those in the practice setting predominantly. I have done work in the academic setting, but our predominant work is in the practice setting with uh, the profession in practice in a wide ranging number of organizations that are confronted with the challenge of, of really dealing with these issues and trying essentially to get ahead of the curve on a lot of these issues and resolving some of the problems that have driven some of the uh, uh, challenges that we're trying to address. We also have worked, uh, I think I've worked with almost all of the magnet organizations in the country at one time or another, wow. um, helping them with uh, next levels of excellence or moving beyond, uh, you know, once you get magnet recognized, the big question is, well, what now? What does that well, mean? What's Where next? Do we go? Well, you know, excellence is a journey, not an event. So let's talk about that. And, and, and uh, so uh, our practice becomes a, a place where that can occur and I can do that work. So there's really three, three things that I, I do in, in my life. Uh, the practice is one of them. Um, uh, academic, as, as you indicated when you were introducing me, I do have those roles. So teaching, learning, uh, research is a piece of that. And then the third piece is I, I do a lot of writing. Um, because uh, the one thing that's good about writing is it's right there on paper. When somebody says they didn't know, I can always say, well, then you probably didn't see this. So that you know, there's an opportunity for, for what you're saying and what you're doing to become um, uh, more sustainable and useful. So those are kind of how I organize my life in terms of work. Great, thank you so much. Um, anything else you wanna share? Uh, um, I just wanna end by saying, gosh, where did all the time go? <laughs> we just scratched the surface. We've got 13 weeks of conversation to have. We could really go there. And, uh, and say how much I appreciate you inviting me to have this conversation and, uh, and frankly, how excited I am by the conversation. And, and it's, it's just another way for me to be able to say that one of the best decisions that I ever made in my life, uh, whether accidental or not, was the one to become a nurse. And I have never regretted it. Now, I have had some dark days but I have never regretted this as a choice because I uh, there there's absolutely no limit to the difference you can make in this profession. Great, I, I greatly appreciate your time. I wish we we did have more time. You're always welcome to come back uh, and we can discuss um, and uh, uh, a little bit off the record. But I am trying to put together another uh, sort of a panel discussion show that's going to be connected to this. So you heard it here first. <laughs> uh, Very good. So, so looking to looking forward and bring some of the, some of the incredible people we, I've had the honor of uh, speaking to, to come together and uh, talk about specific topics and contribute that way. Sounds um, exciting. Fingers crossed. Uh, we'll, we'll have something uh, kicked off hopefully uh, within the next six months. Um, so thank you again. We've been listening to Dr. Uh, Porter O'Grady, uh, and uh, it's been, a, it's been a, again, a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, and to our, all of our listeners, uh, we will uh, thank you for tuning in, and we will uh, see you soon. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayyip. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.